a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Romas with you. Today we're going to be talking about some self-improvement, both physical and mental health, uh, and just being a better all-around person. And for that, I have Sachin Lati on the program. Sachin is the man behind Such in Motion, which is an initiative to aid serving military personnel, veterans, first responders, and families experiencing mental health illness from traumatic events by passing on donations to charities and movements. Sachin has had several family members who've served in both military and police capacities. And Sachin himself works for Canada Border Services Agency. Now he works to raise money through such emotion and will complete 22 marathons in 22 days in August, this coming August, and is going to run across Canada in 2025. So welcome, Sachin. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I don't know if you keep up with recent controversies, uh, but maybe we'll get you in a passport <laughs> if you would complete this <laughs> run across Canada. <laughs> hey, man. Uh, listen, I I, uh, I try to track as much as I can, but I try to stay out as much as, much as I can. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a pretty heated debate about all this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I just on that, I, I do value Canadian history and I do value... Um, things that get people to remember who they are and where they come from. Mm. So hopefully that can illustrate my thoughts on um, what's going on. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I get you. Um, maybe, you know, maybe we'll start kind of at the beginning. Uh, I was listening to a podcast about you. Uh, it was the 1033 podcast from just about almost a year ago now. I think it was June of 2022. And you're talking a lot about life and stuff. And I, um, I don't know how many times you retold all these stories since then, but maybe we could start at the beginning and just uh, sure. tell us uh, about you and family and where you come from so people kind of get a picture leading up to some of the stuff we're going to talk about. For sure, man. And it's it's crazy. Uh, yeah, that was almost a year ago when I was on 1033 with uh, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, just, just a quick point. I've been on a, a bunch of podcasts, obviously, over the last little while, and you can almost progressively see my mental state in each of those podcasts and where it started. Mm -hmm. You know, like a year and a half ago, you can kind of see I was in the heat of sort of my depression and, and toxic sort of mindset that I was in Yeah. versus today. It, so it's awesome that you're bringing that one up. Anyway, so uh, who I am and um, I'm, I'm Canadian. I was, I was born in London, Ontario. Um, my parents immigrated from England at the time. And before that, my parents had, uh, were born in India. So they were, um, immigrants and I have an older brother who was born in England when, uh, my parents were living there and they came to Canada. I was born in London, Ontario, then moved to Toronto area. I lived there until I was about 12 or so. And then from there, my dad, uh, he was a professional engineer. So he got transferred to a company in the United States and, uh, in Dallas, Texas, Texas, actually in Richardson, Texas, the company was called Fujitsu. He was a, uh, what do you call it? An electrical engineer. So we moved down to the Dallas area and I went to high school there. And that's kind of in a nutshell where I kind of grew up and, and, um, 
mm, some of the experiences that I had in terms of physical activity first started really in, in, in Texas. Mm, okay. Oh, and I saw that you started wrestling down there. So mm-hmm. maybe you want to talk a bit about that or what got you into wrestling of all the sports? Yeah. So, well, I mean, America, America has everything. You could be the cornhole champion nowadays. So, <laughs> <laughs> Especially where I went to school, man. I went to school in Plano, uh, Plano Senior High uh, in, in, in a town northeast of Dallas. And it, uh, it was a, an affluent neighborhood where, you know, people were doing well and so the environment in the schools were treated similarly where they had all the bells and whistles and all the sports teams and all the varsity, this, that, and the other. So you could see it. Now, when I moved to Dallas, um, I started grade nine there. So I, after grade eight in, in Mississauga area, moved down to Dallas and that was a massive culture shock for me, man, because, uh, <laughs> I'd never been to a state like that before. Mm-hmm. And you, so you have some preconceived notions of what that would be. And um, when I moved down there, those preconceived notions weren't true or accurate. It was an awesome place, but uh, I wasn't ready for the shift. And, um, you know, I had my own issues in terms of like, you know, the only brown kid around, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, getting bullied <clears throat> for not by a ton of people, but, you know, by a few people when I first got there. And um, so that was a struggle. I was fairly isolated. And I'm also just naturally an introvert. So that wasn't really helpful for me to meet new people either. Yeah. So I was super isolated and alone and, 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 you know, didn't really do much. And so my dad was like, hey, try out for some sports. So I tried out for basketball, never played a day of basketball my entire life. So as you can imagine, uh, going <laughs> into a suburb of Dallas where, you know, basketball is probably pretty popular, even in grade nine. Yeah. And they're doing all these, you know, the tryouts, people are doing whatever. And I'm just like, what's going on here? Uh, yeah. I got cut after 10 days. And <laughs> <laughs> we got people grade nine, they're like eight feet tall and they're, you know, just reach up and they're dunking the ball. <laughs> that and just, okay. Even besides that, all the kids knew how to do the drills. Yeah. And then you had to set everything was just like they understood everything. And I was like, oh, yeah. where do I stand? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Very basic. Very basic. And um, so, anyway, so that, um, so I, I got cut and I was like, okay, whatever. I didn't expect anything anyway. And, um, but I was getting bullied and I was super, like, I didn't have any friends. And my dad was having, my parents were having a bit of a, not issues, but there was concerned with uh, where I was at. So my dad took me into the school and we had, you know, you have your counselors meetings with the, 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 uh, school counselor <clears throat> and, um, school counselor was like, Hey, uh, we have a wrestling team and our, our wrestling coach is always taking new people that have zero experience. And so I was like, okay, cool. My dad's like, yeah, cool. So I started that. He helped me out. And then uh, from there, I just kind of, um, didn't know anything about wrestling. Didn't have a clue. But the wrestling coach was awesome mm-hmm. and he was really, he was open and he was cool with having new people and he was patient. And, um, that's kind of what started all this sort of physical activity for me. Were you, uh, back then, or were you a big guy? Mm-mm. Man, I'll tell you, I was, uh, 
<clears throat> I've very much um, mm, I've surpassed my genetics, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Like in terms of where I'm at today, I've overcome my genetics. So <laughs> okay. it, it, having said having said that, I was a small guy, man. I was like maybe grade nine, maybe like 130, 140 pounds ish. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, and uh, five nine at that time right um, would they even have a weight class for you <clears throat> so in grade nine uh we were we were considered like we are uh, my school split up two ways right so uh in grade nine and ten was one school mm -hmm. and then grade 11 and 12 was another school so we didn't have any varsity for wrestling at uh, oh, okay at the, at the nine level so we tried so and all the kids were really pretty green to wrestling because it wasn't that prominent in the area. So my wrestling coach was establishing a, a program. It, well, he had established a program, but you know, everyone was going to football, soccer, baseball, um, track, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, all, all those sort of, not as much even soccer. It was more, this is what people do football, track, uh, baseball. And that's what everyone was doing. Right. And you know, if you, if you got into wrestling, you know, you were the fringe kind of kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was gonna say, unless you're like on, on the trajectory to like Olympics, there's not really, as far as I know, there's not really, yeah. or WWE, <laughs> but outside of those two, I don't know what else you are going to make money in doing wrestling. Right. No. Yeah. And I mean, wrestling was more of like, um, I mean, you did have a lot of kids doing wrestling there and they were starting at five or six years old, but they were, they had clubs and stuff. And a lot of kids were doing that too. Um, but not in my team. So in my school, the wrestling program was relatively new. It was maybe mm -hmm. like say ten years old, whereas in certain other areas in the in the region was older, right? So you had okay. people that were much better at it. So um, yeah. So having said that, yeah, I, I joined the wrestling team. The first two years was kind of figuring things out, making friends, and learning things, and then eventually I I, I was okay at it. I wasn't amazing, but I was definitely opened my eyes to um, what getting after it means yeah. Yeah, yeah at least at least the first stages of it you know two days and all that kind of stuff wow and has that continued throughout the rest of your life because i know you do jujitsu now mm -hmm. so no it didn't man like i uh i wrestled for four years and towards the end of my in, in high school i you know i started lifting weights i the heaviest i got in high school was uh 158 pounds I was, I was, uh, I was, I was small, man. Yeah. I was skinny and, uh, and I was in the 155 weight class division. And, um, so yeah, I started lifting weights and stuff, but then family issues, family, financial issues. Um, you know, a lot of things started happening with, with, uh, my parents in terms of like, uh, you know, um, employment and business and, and things of that nature where, um, things became a lot more stressful and, mm -hmm. um, the access to fitness was not actually happening. Okay. So, you know, there was, a, there was a period of time where I didn't work out at all or train at all. And I was pretty much like, at, pretty much after high school, like from like 18, 19, I was, um, trying, I was bumming around just partying, you know, just kind of having a good time with my friends that I had made through high school. <laughs> And, and that lasted for a few years. So uh, maybe you want 
tell us how you, cause you end up back in Canada and that's where mm-hmm. you're based now. Right. So mm-hmm. you're down in Dallas, things are kind of changing the family dynamics. What happens after that? Like how do you end up back in Canada? Yeah. So, so long story short, um, my par- my my parents uh, ended up owning a business, a restaurant business, towards the end of the uh, duration of our, our stay in Dallas, and that didn't do very well towards the end, and financially <clears throat> became destitute in terms of like, you know, lost everything. Mm. So my parents um, didn't have too many alternatives, so they sold a bunch of their stuff and and they moved to India for a period of time to kind of just get settled. And my brother and I were like, okay, well, what are we gonna do? Uh, so we got a U-Haul and, and packed up our stuff and drove to Vancouver. And the reason why we came to Vancouver is because my brother had a girlfriend at the time that was from here. And that's why we came to Vancouver. And <laughs> that's how I got it's here. It's always the women, eh? Yeah, everybody <laughs> follow on the women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, I had no clue. I mean, I had never been to the West Coast my entire life. Didn't know anything about it. Um, so I was like, yeah, cool. Let's go for a drive. And drove up to from Dallas to Vancouver. Took a couple days. And then uh, found a spot and started. Yeah. Well, and moving to Vancouver, I guess it doesn't make you any richer. <laughs> it's definitely a no. pricey place to live. Well, so yeah, when you're going through high school, are you kind of on any sort of trajectory? Uh, I'll say academic wise, are you uh, looking at anything in particular, like fields that you were looking to work in? Yeah. Going to university, any of that stuff? Yeah. So those are good questions, man. Uh, I was a fairly, um, was a fairly lost kind of kid. You know, I didn't really know what direction to go in in my life. Um, you know, I, I grew up in an Indo-Canadian family household with immigrant parents. So my parents were not as strict as some, but they were more strict than others. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like having a future plan, you know, I didn't have any, and that was a bit of an issue. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, I didn't know what, honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I just kind of did what I was told and, mm. you know, or what was suggested. And at the time, um, in high school, I, I didn't know which direction to go. I didn't know what career I wanted to go in. Um, after I graduated, I applied to go to U- University of Texas at Dallas. And so UTD, uh, I went there for my first year <clears throat> just because it was local. But um, I had no idea what to study. It was just like all business type of classes, like what, you know, what you, what I thought I should probably take. And I flailed at all of them um, for a few reasons. One, because I wasn't, I just didn't really have that much care for it. Um, yeah. number one, number, number two, um, like we, everything around me was, uh, all upside down in terms of like stability wise. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I couldn't, even if I wanted to sit down and focus and study, it would, it was very hard for me because yeah. I had no stable environment to do that. in. and, um, there was a, a turmoil at home in terms of, you know, safe, not safety, but like just calm it wasn't there yeah and so so it can you know it's it was a futile attempt i probably shouldn't have wasted that money to be honest uh it was an entire waste of money because i didn't do anything with it and um sounds like a constant pressure like what the way you describe being um the home environment is yeah it's not it's not necessarily safety but it's like there's just always this 
uh, <laughs> hard expectation. And if you're not living up to it, you know, you're letting people down or you're failing people, whether you are or not, it's, it's just, you know, the, the mindset, right. And you're always worried about it. A hundred percent, man. I felt like a failure for a lot of times because, okay. So my dad, <laughs> very prominent in my life. I love him very much. Um, and I love my mom very much. And my dad made a lot of, he, he made a success for the most part of his life from nothing. Right. And he left India at the age of 19. Mm. Uh, you know, he struggled, he grinded, he got an education, um, in England. He got his master's degree in England, like all these types of things, you know, where he worked hard and, and made a success with the limited things that he was given. And, um, and, we would always, you know, my brother and I would always hear stories from my dad, like, oh, your grandfather did this, your great-grandfather did this, your great-uncle, these are the people that are in our family, we have this kind of lineage. So it was almost, um, you know, I would hear these things all the time, and it got to the point where my brother and I, or at least from, for sure for me, I'm like, okay, I get it, I've heard it, like, I know, I get it. Mm -hmm. But it was instilled so much in our heads that um, it was almost natural to feel like a loser. Because I wasn't achieving anything at that time. I was achieving nothing. Yeah. And for a lot of period of time, I felt like a loser. Yeah, for sure. I wonder too, if that's, uh, you know, just you look at past generations of people and maybe there's just less opportunity, less, they, there's just definitely less jobs out there uh, in different fields. So maybe they really expect, you know, you to follow down this path. This worked for me. I want you to do this. But nowadays it's like, I mean, you can go off and do all kinds of things and you can switch careers in the middle of careers. You can go to two to three to four different careers or employers and still make it work. Um, imagine even like for yourself, you're saying you move from Canada to the U.S., you move back to Canada, parents have left. Now it's just you and your brother, like your young, young men out there and I mean, that's uh, a whole lot of challenges on its own. Yeah. And then living in BC, as I was saying before, I mean, it's a, not an easy cost of living to kind of absorb. So that is definitely a, a challenge in life that you have to overcome. No, for sure, man. It was definitely a challenge. And <clears throat> I, I mean, I didn't know it was a challenge, but at the time, reflecting back on it, obviously it looked it's a challenge. Um, and it was a very hard one to overcome. For both myself and my brother, for sure. Um, you know, we just got basic jobs when we got up here, just kind of worked and slowly through that process. Uh, actually, I mean, it wasn't even, I didn't even begin a process until I was about, ooh, 26, 27. Yeah. Like it was only then I really started to put things together a little bit to kind of um, move in a trajectory that uh, I find myself on now. Okay. Well, um, one thing I was going to ask was, I saw that you guys had uh, your brother and you both did music. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> Can you tell us about that a bit? Because I think... <laughs> For sure. <laughs> if people look into you and like look at your website and stuff, uh, man, you got a lot of different angles to your life. So yeah. I'm wondering about this music stuff. Can you talk a bit about that? For sure. Absolutely, man. Um, so my brother's been in the music. My brother is... Uh, I'm 45. So my brother's 48. He's three years older than me. And he's been doing music stuff since he was 16, 15, 16. And so my brother 
really lo- <laughs> okay. So I grew up in a musical type of household. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad would have music on all the time, and it was not. Uh, it was all like Indian types of music, right? Um, yeah. Various different genres of the in, uh, Indian subcontinent, and um, you know, I grew up listening to that. My brother grew up listening to all that kind of music, and you know, I loved it, and I still do. And my brother really gravitated towards it, and he really wanted. To, he had a passion for music. And, um, but he never really picked up any instruments. Mm. I, you know, he would ask my parents to, Hey, I want to learn this. I want that. And, you know, my, they would not really indulge it too much. And so my brother just started DJing then trying to figure out how to DJ, how to, you know, turn tables and things like that. And, um, so he really got good at that. And he started DJing various different gigs at 16, 17, 18 years old, various clubs and stuff. And, um, <clears throat> my parents weren't really fond of that. They're like, who, mm. what are you trying to do here? What's, you know, so it was really counterculture kind of stuff, you know, where like, uh, Hey, so like it's a nice hobby. <laughs> yeah. Well, not even that, man. My, my dad really? was like, who are you trying to be? You're trying to be some musician. Let's get, hit the box. Do yeah. something, do something <laughs> okay. with your life. Right. That kind of thing. And, um, but anyway, so my brother got into that and really got into it. And he eventually got to a point where he started actually, he was doing well. He was, you know, doing various different gigs. But then he also was really into like music production and trying to figure out how to do that. So he basically taught himself how to do music production, how to do DJing, all that kind of stuff. And he, when he first went to university, uh, he went to University of Western Ontario. And uh, when he went there, it's, he cut his first album and <laughs> And he, and, and, you know, just like a mixtape kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, so he, he would, uh, eventually start building that up. He'd make a bunch of cassette tapes, go to various different towns, sell them. And, and he, he would eventually build a name through that. And over a period of time, he, you know, he created a fairly big following and anybody who knows anything about, uh, that type of genre of music will know who my brother is. He's, he's, he's actually quite. Uh, he made a name for himself. He eventually he signed a rec, uh, with a record label in the UK. He moved to the England for a number of years, and, and he did a lot of production work for a company out there. He used wow. to tour around. He used to work for the BBC Asian Network. He used to be a radio host. He used to do all these types of things. And um, he became fairly famous in that field. He went to Bollywood. He did a few songs for a few movies. And I was kind of in that sort of sphere with him for a period of time when he was really cutting albums in, in England, um, <clears throat> he was super prolific in, in types of, in how much he was cutting and how, how much music he was doing for a bunch of other people too. And I was, I had just joined, uh, <clears throat> I just uh, joined the military at the time. I was going through, uh, I went through basic training and then I went to RMC and, um, my first year RMC, the first few months, he messages me. He's like, okay, yeah. So I sound record label. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living in England now and, you know, I'm cutting these albums. Just send me some pictures of you and I'll, I'll cut an album and I'll throw your face on it. You <laughs> <laughs> know, and, and, you know, with some of my input or whatever, but like, you know, eventually, you know, I, I, I got into it a little bit with him more for the fun aspect. So I, you know, I'd go visit him in England and do tours with him around various different gigs. And, and then North America, we'd tour around uh, LA Dallas, New York, various different um, mm. cities across North America for for the Indo Canadian or for the Indian, um, you know, youth, right? Like okay. kids or, or teenagers or you know people our age, 
that um, wanted to hear more of a, a mixed or a fusion type of uh, sound to mm-hmm. the music. Um, so yeah, we, we were prolific in like hip hop and and um, that kind of music, but combining it with the Indian type of music. So how long did that last for, and, and what made you get out of there? Um, that lasted for me on and off for a number of years. It got I got out of it because um, it wasn't good for me. Okay. <laughs> okay. The, the atmosphere and the lifestyle was not a good one for me because I indulged mm. myself a lot. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I knew what kind of person I am. I know what kind of person I am. I knew, you know, in that environment wouldn't be the best sort of long-term longevity for me. <clears throat> and I wasn't passionate about it. I, I was looking at it just to party and, and meet people, right? It wasn't like a, a thing I love to do in the sense of like purpose and passion compared to what I'm doing now. Yeah. So for my brother, that's what it was for him. And so he's he was in the music business for 25 years. I mean, he's done a lot of things where, you know, like a lot of people know who he is. So, uh, you know, and he, he, I think he's getting back into it a little bit here and there, but you know, he, uh, he, he made a name for himself and he, he hit a pinnacle to that level. And that was just not for me. Well, it's good that you can, uh, recognize that while you're in it too. Um, or at least keep your head about yourself because, uh, we deal with like at my job, we deal with a lot of guys who make a lot of money and, and basically travel the world and get into all kinds of things. Uh, maybe some slightly different things than you were in. But um, when you're in there and you basically have the world at, you know, within your hands, um, boy, they, they talk about how like uh, the mindset, it, it's hard to get away from it. It's hard to give up that type of lifestyle when just things are so readily available. Um, one thing uh, I was going to ask here, because you brought it up, was the military aspect. So you said you went and did basic training. And then you went off to do the music uh, here and there. So did you just do basic? And then um, did you do anything further on the military side of things? So yeah, uh, I was... So how did that happen? <laughs> um, I was doing nothing with my life. I was around 20, 21, 22. I was bumming around. I think I was working at Blockbuster Video. You know, I was just doing nothing, right? And... Um, my dad was extremely disappointed in the person that I was at the time. Mm-hmm. And for me, that, that didn't feel good. And I didn't like that. I just didn't know how to get out of what I was doing. <clears throat> and my dad was like, man, do something with your life. Join the, join the military or something. I was like, cool. All right. <laughs> so I went to a recruiting office and um, I, I applied. And I had um, decent high school grades. Mm-hmm. So they said, why don't you apply to go to RMC as an officer? I was like, well, okay, cool. I didn't really know what that was. I, I got some information. I understood it and it sounded cool. It sounded like, oh, that'd be badass, you know? So I applied and I got in and I did my basic training. And then I went to RMC for that first year. I did my phase training for infantry. Um, I did two phase trainings. And then, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I I hadn't squared away my mental health at that time either, right? Like I was still mm. kind of like all over the place, and I was partying and drinking, man, and 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 I wasn't studying the way I should have been, and I um, I I ended up not passing um, after that first year, and um, I, I left the military after 
because um, I just, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't mentally sound enough to do it. Um, the physical stuff that I could manage, but even that I wasn't great at. Um, Cause I was always, I was drinking a lot. Like I was, yeah. 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 You're talking like the maturity side of things, right? Yeah. Maturity, you know, well, that's kind of missing. You know, there's a distinction I think I'd like to make. I don't know. The maturity side, I guess I could say that, but I, I don't, it sounds almost like a cop out to me. Mm. Um, I think it was that, you know, for sure maturity is there had I had the maturity to understand where I was mentally, I wouldn't have, I would have done many, many things before even applying to go to RMC to square myself away. Okay. Um, I, I, and the question is why was I drinking? Yeah. So that's really the question, right? And, you know, we all say, Oh, you know, maturity, you kind of get it out of your system, but man, I was drinking to numb a lot of things Mm -hmm. and to make myself feel better about stuff. And I was super depressed all the time. And even though I was doing certain things, I was always kind of depressed and felt shitty about who I was. And I didn't feel like as a a good person. So I I, I would drink. So now I can say that now because I have the luxury of 25 years to reflect upon. At that time, I didn't know, man. I was like, oh, I just want to go party. But the reality is that wasn't the case. I was just trying to escape my, my life, how shitty it was. Yeah. Well, I, I was it, it kind of got me thinking just how like I've had a few previous guests on here and no matter what topic I'm talking about so I could be talking about gang members and how people get into gangs and and live these certain lifestyles uh, I had a guest on recently who is actually from Ghana I was chatting with this guy and and talking about some of the uh, lives of people over there and no matter who it is or where they come from Everything always comes down to personal responsibility, your own choices, taking control of your own life and a control of your own destiny. Um, and at some point, I guess people snap out of that, uh, out of the lifestyle that they're in. And others, like you just continue down that path and it just gets worse and worse. But um, like, I mean, when we get into some of maybe the uh, like CBSA stuff later on, but uh, uh talking about like law enforcement and policing. Uh, now you see like so many people make excuses for offenders and it's like, they're the victims where for me, it's like, well, you know, maybe they're a victim of their circumstances to a degree, but at the end of the day, it, it's down to the individual to make the choice. Like I'm going to stop doing drugs or drinking, or I'm going to get some help for whatever uh, I need the help for. I'm going to turn my life around. So I, I just find that common thread, no matter who I talk to, it's always comes back to the individual. Cause at the end of the day, nobody can physically make you do something. Um, you know, it's, it's up to you to go get that help or change yourself or do whatever you need to. So I like how you kind of uh, frame that. No, I agree with you, man. And look, um, I, I think individual responsibility is super important. Um, I understand that now. And, <clears throat> but it's hard to think that way when you have a victim yeah. mentality. Right. And, um, you know, I've had a victim mentality for most of my life. I thought, I never thought mm-hmm. I did. 
But now that I've over the last couple of years reflecting a great deal, I was like, oh well, you know, I did. I, I, you know, I was like, oh, what was me, or, or, um, oh, I got screwed over here, or this person didn't do that for me, or this person owes me this, or whatever, right? Like all the things that a lot of people or a lot of us say. And what I recognized over the last couple of years is that um, no one, no one cares about me mm-hmm. the way that I can care about myself. I mean, why should they, right? And if I don't love myself or take care of myself, then man, no one else is going to do that. So I had to start figuring out how to do that and how to, how to really mm, develop that self-worth in myself so that I, I feel good about taking control of everything. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is no one's going to do anything for us. And, and on this current path I'm on, no one's going to give me, you know, uh, anything to make it happen i have to create it all i have to figure out how to make everything happen and i'm awesome with that because i control it no one gets to dictate what happened yes i i can i control my destiny now and and it, it's i'm thankful and i have so much gratitude that at the age of 45 i can realize it now that we all can create our reality and we all can create what we envision. And at least I believe that I haven't really done that fully, but I can see it happening. And now I can, you know, that I've taken full control over my life, taken ownership over my life, um, as opposed to giving that to someone else, either subconsciously or not. Um, it's such an empowering feeling, man, like where I can get up every single day. I can, that's what we're doing. Okay. This is the direction we're going in. And it's such a, um, peaceful mindset. Well, that's the way you, you do things that you like things that you're interested in. Um, but also I guess everybody's got their things they got to deal with. So they can't spend all day dealing with yourself, even a spouse or kids. Yeah. They, they like being around you so much. And then they say, okay, get away, go sit in some other room. <laughs> so yeah, people, yeah, they, you know, they got their own things that they want to deal with. So end of the day, it's up to you to take control of your own life. Um, so with that, like, so you, you were doing some of the military stuff, experiences some music, um, vastly different worlds. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where do you kind of go from there? So from there, I came back um, in Kingston, Ontario, tail between my legs. <laughs> and my parents were, my parents had moved back to Canada at the time. And they moved back to the lower mainland of BC. And um, that was a tough call because at the end of my term in, in Kingston, I was out of the military. I was struggling to find a place to live. Um, I was bumming around people's houses. I couldn't find a like place to stay. So um, I was couch surfing for a bit and then it got to a point where I was like, man, I need to get my life together here because I'm going nowhere fast. So I called my parents and I was like, yeah, <laughs> this is where I'm at. Um, can, I, can I crash at your place and figure out what I need to do? And my parents were like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And even though, I was, even though I was like dreading to do that, uh, they gave me a, a safe, um, you know, a soft place to land. And then I kind of started putting things together and went, uh, applied to go to uh, a, a local college here and start going to school again to study criminal justice and, you know, slowly, incrementally putting things back together. And 
starting a bit of a routine and a bit of a schedule. And that's kind of what started. And then I started studying. And then after about two years, I had applied to CBSA student program mm. as a student officer. And that's what got me into becoming a CBSA officer. It wasn't so much that I dreamt about being a law enforcement officer my entire life. I hadn't. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of fell into it. Okay. Well, and on your website, I mean, you mentioned some of your family that have been military um, and with distinguished uh, careers. Um, you had police in there as well. So none of that ever kind of came into play. Or did you ever have any interactions with any of the family that have served? It did. Yeah. So my grandfather, <clears throat> my dad's father was a, a police officer, um, equivalent to like a chief of police for a region of like the size of the Vancouver area. Okay. So it was, you know, he was, you know, was, he was up there and he received various medals for his uh, work. So, but I never really talked to him about that because he was like, I, he lived mm -hmm. in India. Right. And um, mm -hmm. so for me to have these, have these conversations never really happened. But I saw his pictures. I saw his medals. I, I have his medals actually here that I'm going to, I still have to get them cleaned up and polished. I'm probably pr put them up somewhere at my place. But, mm -hmm. um, and then, but my dad talked a lot about his grandfather and uh, how he was instrumental in creating, sorry, or almost kind of setting up the entire family to, for success in the sense of like what he did from a military perspective, what he did from a business perspective, how he served the community. And, um, and how his, also my great uncle, um, so that would have been his, uh, his uncle was also served a great deal and, and, you know, was, I mean, instrumental in creating military intelligence in India. And, um, so, you know, these, I've heard the stories from my dad. Mm -hmm. So my, I, it, it all comes from my dad, but all the sort of the, the sense of service, the sense of, um, the lineage and i'm also uh i come from a community um a punjabi community a sikh community and for your listeners like sikhs are the whole philosophy is is the saint soldier mentality mm -hmm. and that's a that's a term that's used in sikhism saint soldier mary piri and um it's just the that you know it's, it's no different than a stoic mentality it's no different than this uh you know like a, a samurai so, sort of way of thinking um and you know i grew up thinking that way and and there's a term in, in sikhism called seva and it means uh selfless service mm. and it's at the forefront of all sikhs it should be anyways and, but it is and when you if anyone who's listening to this has been to a sikh temple um every you know part of the selfless service act is done every single day there because every person in the congregation goes down to the the mess hall where people serve food and it's all done by volunteers of the community okay serving the food and then get so everything is done with selfless sort of mindset and what's that mean um do things for others without expecting anything in return so these are all philosophies and ideologies I grew up with. I've never really implemented them in the right manner until now. Mm -hmm. But um, but I've I've grown up listening to that kind of stuff. And I'm I just, I'm not a super religious person either. But man, I love these sort of uh, these philosophies, man, because mm -hmm. it's almost like a a way of kind of creating or scaffolding or or or, or a blueprint for your life. Yeah. 
that has helped me kind of manage myself a little bit better. Well, that was one of the things I was going to ask is like, how big of a role did religion play in kind of the progression of you and just things you've done throughout your life? You're saying it didn't have like a huge impact, but maybe now, do you find yourself now being more, Mm. I'll say religious, like maybe, but maybe you're more open to the concepts that are kind of taught in there? Yeah, man, for sure. I'm more open to it. Absolutely. I'm more open to everything now. Mm -hmm. I I just have an open mind to whatever. um, Because I know in 42, three years, up until a couple of years ago, I I put my life into a ditch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So clearly what I was doing wasn't the right way of doing things. (laughs) So I wanted to find, I just wanted to find a better way to do life. And it didn't matter where it was coming from. And who is kind of um, providing that sort of information for me? I was just searching. And that's another funny thing, man. I, I, I kind of reflect back on a lot of things and I kind of I see all these different signs for me. So the term, the word seek or sick means a student. Mm, okay. Right? And a, a, a constant learner. Someone's always searching for wisdom or, or guidance. And I've kind of been doing that, man, over the last two years. I've been just trying to reach out to as many people as possible that I think have something to offer and I can learn from. And I'm just been doing that, keeping my mind open. Oh, you got, so, oh, that's kind of out of left field. I've never heard that before. Okay, let me listen to it. Well, okay. All right. Does it make sense? Cool. And I just kind of moved that way now. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the only way you're really going to learn. And everybody just kind of has a different way, different spin on things, a uh, different way of getting to the same goal, I guess. So, well, why not be open to it? Um, you worked uh, and you went into CBSA. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about uh, some of the experiences there? Because uh, I've had minimal interaction with CBSA being in Edmonton. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, right, right. Uh, I mean, we've had a few people deported. Um, <laughs> but what, uh, what was working at CBSA like? And maybe you could start us at the beginning, just what the recruiting yeah. training aspect is. So uh, training has changed so much over the last, I started 18 years ago. So training and recruiting has changed so much, Mm. Um, especially with CBSA. Since 9-11, there's been massive shifts and changes um, with public safety, obviously, right? The creation of various different ministries and and cabinet members and all this kind of stuff. And uh, CBSA was fundamentally changed around that time mm-hmm. created more of a law enforcement environment as opposed to tax collectors which essentially what uh cra was and and canada revenue agency so customs used to be part of cra oh really right okay and yeah so until um it fell under to a different after 9-11 things were restructured and it fell under the emergency preparedness the uh, sort of um umbrella mm-hmm. and and uh and then that's when cbsa started really shifting because there was two d- divisions well th- really three but those you had your customs you had your immigration and then you had your agriculture and all were three different entities under different sort of organization umbrellas after 9 11 they pretty they tried to combine all of it okay and w- what they tried to do was well what they did do was um, create the officers so that they can do all of the jobs. Okay. 
not just customs, not just immigration, but also ag- uh, agriculture. So that's why CBSA was created. Canada Border Services, was, everything was all integrated now. So that was an entirely brand new learning process for many people. People had to understand and learn. So in terms of training, when I started, there was no arming. We didn't start with a pistol, like none of that stuff. We didn't have it. Hmm. So I didn't get armed. I didn't go through arming until, um, when did I go get my arm, uh, sidearm? Mm, for sure. 10 years after I'd already started. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Cause, cause I was working at the Vancouver airport. So the airports were the last places that would give people training. Cause they were, you, you still are not allowed to, um, carry a firearm as a CBSA officer in the airport environment hmm. based, uh, due to, due to, um, uh, various different air, air traffic control laws and yeah. whatever. I'm not too privy on it, but there's certain rules that don't allow it. So, you know, um, so what they try to do is, uh, try to, <clears throat> Uh, have all the land border officers armed beforehand. And that took a period of a few years. And then eventually the, the uh, airport staff will get the um, training for it. So yeah, lots of changes. So when I went, I went uh, in 2007, it was a 13 week program just outside of Montreal in a town called Rigo. And um, yeah, man, it was cool. I mean, I had, a, I mean, look, the experiences just like any other federal agency or law enforcement agency, there's growing pains and there's things that aren't perfect because it's such a, it's the second largest law enforcement agency or uh, organization in Canada after the RCMP. Yeah. And um, so it's, you know, it's huge. And so you're going to have those issues related to, um, you know, such an organization. Now for me was a good experience for sure, man. I experienced things that I never thought in a million years I I would. I learned a lot of things and met all kinds of people, man, Mm -hmm. being at an international airport. You know, if anybody's applying to go into CBSA, I would highly recommend if you're going to do that, if you get a choice, man, pick an international airport to start at and primarily either Montreal, Toronto or Vancouver, because you're going to get all the experiences, man, like all kinds of people you're going to get in contact with that you probably never, ever meet in your entire life. Did you get to, uh, do they do like a staffing interview? Cause I, I remember like I went through depot initially before yeah. coming to the Edmonton police and you have your mm-hmm. staffing interview. So they kind of give you your provinces that are open. And then once they tell you where you're going there, then they give you the list. I think so. Yeah. I think now, I think now it's uh, something like that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's similar. Like I think you get a selection of regions and then you get to pick your regions, but you don't really get to specifically decide which port of entry you're going to work at. Yeah. So you can pick a region and, or you can decide to, you can elect to be at a, like a small port, do that for a couple of years and then get to pick where you want to go after. Okay. So there's, there are options and flexibility there. Um, and I think it's an amazing opportunity for someone who's, you know, younger, who has never seen the country and, you know, it's same with the RCMP, man. It's awesome opportunities for young people to be able to travel across the country, see all kinds of different types of people, yeah, and um, and have those experiences. Because those experiences, man, I've never really realized until now, but having experiences where you're um, meeting all different types of people is very informative for your brain. <laughs> At least for me, that's yeah. <laughs> well, can you talk about some of the anything that stands out? in your mind, um, some of the experiences you did have? Sure. So I'll break it down. Like for me, um, 
I started as a customs officer, so that basically means um, the management of or the managing the flow of goods in and out of the country, right? right? And so I did that for about three years, trying to understand and hone my craft in terms of what's that mean for me. Because like anyone else who's starting in any career, you want to understand what kind of person you want to be in that career. Yeah. For me, I wanted to be a certain type of officer. I wanted to get enforcement. I wanted to, you know, have do the fun, sexy kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, that you would think interdict drugs and swallowers, drug smugglers, and all this kind of stuff. So I wanted to learn how to do that kind of stuff. First, for its first three years, I kind of was just getting my feet wet, understanding things, and then from there, I um, I applied for an enforcement team at the Vancouver Airport. And uh, I did that for three years, and it was a team that, um, you know, met, um, it was a team that would examine people or look at people leaving the country um, for proceeds of crime, okay, uh, currency legislation, and then um, also work airside and um, for internal internal conspiracy sort of issues at the airport. So I was on a team for that, like that for about three years. Is that like, uh, you said internal conspiracies? So for example, like look, um, when you have um, an international airport, you have thousands of people working there, right? Yeah. Almost like a, a small town. And um, you have people working at the airport on the ramps that might have connections with organized crime, yeah. um, might, might be involved or might be some you know, issues with those individuals. Um, so we would be monitoring them from time to time or um, examining planes and people on the flights, mm -hmm. um, including you know, pilots and, and flight attendants. And so we were, we, we were doing more of the enforcement um, arm of what we were designed to do at the Vancouver airport. Okay, cool. Yeah. You, what kind of um, experiences you have with that? Like any, Anything standing out from those? So, like, yeah, I mean, there's always. Um, so, as a, for me, as a CBSA officer, what I always wanted to be involved with was um, exams that were, you know, that that were kind of cool that you know you, you may not have heard of or may may not think that you know that's what we do, but um, any sort of interdiction that's happening from a drug perspective happens with CBSA first and then RCMP gets involved. Okay. Because they're not there at first. They're not there first. Right. So for example, um, you may get Intel from time to time saying that there's a smuggler coming in or leaving the country might have a false sided suitcase and you know, you make it and that Intel is coming from our organization. Mm -hmm. It's not coming from, you know, it's from CBSA Intel. And so we would, um, action those things from time to time and then interdict let's say 10 20 kilos of whatever narcotic based on the intel that we've gotten and we would not only interdict that but then now we're also gathering further intel for our intel and then also so they can pass that on to local policing agencies so that they can have a better understanding of which organizations are doing what where and how yeah and um yeah so i mean like specific details i'm not going to give that but like you can understand that over a period of so many years you're going to see all kinds of types of people and all kinds of um concealment methods when it comes to narcotics yeah and how they're being concealed 
um, i.e. people swallowing them and keeping them in their belly, um, how to process or how to interview or question someone who's that type of individual and understand that process. Because for me, that's cool stuff. For mm-hmm. me, that was like, oh, I want to understand behavior. I want to understand what that, why is that person doing that? And then figure out how to get them to tell me why they're doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, for me, it was more of a game for me trying to kind of understand that. And so that's what I enjoyed. Yeah. Some of the people have really interesting life stories. And when you get into it with them, they'll tell you mm-hmm. all kinds of things that you just think like, holy shit, man, you are in this world now. Yeah, uh, what I always find the most interesting about some of the people involved in the organized crime stuff is uh, some of the people that like you would least suspect to be involved. And then all of a sudden they're just muling drugs and you know they've got no criminal record. They got a uh, from their story a, a good home, and you're like, boy, you went from zero to a hundred. Like now you got bricks on you, or you're carrying guns, or or something. It's like, yeah, it's quite the life. Well, the, well, the reality is, that, well, the reality is they're skipping out on telling you the very specifics. Mm-hmm. There's always a reason why someone's doing that, and generally the reason is the, um, desperation. Right, they've 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 messed up their life to a certain degree that they don't know how to get out of the ditch that they created, and one of the solutions for them is I need money, and how am I going to get money? Either I, and if it's a female, it's either you know, you're down and out. Either you're a prostitute, or you're going to be a smuggler. Or mm-hmm. now you got also think now from a drug, uh, from a drug dealer or a drug organization's perspective, what kind of people are you going to use now? Yeah, you smuggle your stuff. You don't want to be high, high targets, right? Because now you got people like me that are looking for those types of people, and you don't want to have people that are going to be, you know, yeah, very obvious. So now, now, what type of people are you, uh, are you, um, you know, trying to recruit to do these gigs for you? And then, man, you know, like, and when it comes to organized crime, there's no level to which they're not going to try to recruit somebody mm-hmm. based upon what they what their needs are. So it's it's very, you know, it's not what you would think. A lot of people, it's all kinds of people, man, that are in this sort of world. It just takes some time to source them for some people. Yeah. And once they're sourced and they see the money coming in or the, you know, the risks, it's a risk reward thing for them, right? Here, you're going to get a couple K, five, three K, then we're going to pay for your trip to wherever. Have a good time. Pick this up and come back. Some people don't think it's a big deal and they do it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And some people think, oh, you know what? It's worth the risk because our laws in Canada, what's the worst that's going to happen? <laughs> so there's yeah. all, the, I mean, but that's a, that's a conversation a lot of these people have, right? Yeah. Now, if, you know, you do the same thing going into the States or another country, maybe they're going to think about it a little bit more seriously. But if they're coming into Canada, if they even get interdicted, the odds of them getting charged might not be that high compared to another country. Yeah. So they're playing those odds as well, right? So how, um, I guess, how in depth do you get to go on an investigation? Because you, you said that you end up handing it off to the RCMP. So are your investigations generally like one shift or can they extend, you know, a few weeks? Like, can you get real in depth with things? It depends on what kind of um, examination you do. Let's say, for example, you do you have a person that's 
swallowed a certain number of pellets mm. and you're examining that person. Well, you're with that person until either they admit what they have or um, you've created enough grounds to take things to the next level. So that could be two or three days you're with that person uh, until the narcotics are gone or out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, once, um, once that happens, once that happens, then the, the, if they're either Canadian or not, then that also changes the dynamic too. If they're Canadian, then for sure, then the RCMP will definitely get involved and at some point so that they can begin their um, investigation and, and, and start gathering their evidence to present to Crown. But all, a lot of their evidence will be coming from CBSA and then it gets transferred over. Well, all of the evidence comes from CBSA because mm. then we, we, we document it, we notate it, we get it all, and then we just transfer it to them and then they take care of control. But um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question. I lost my train of thought. So. Yeah, no, I think you kind of got it there. So it's just um, talking about how in-depth you can actually get mm. uh, as a CBSA officer. But imagine you guys get called to court then because you're handling evidence. Yeah. Yeah. It would be no different than the police side of things. No, no. Yeah. So we've, I've been called for multiple times. And, um, yeah. And also like, let's say for example, the RCMP doesn't want to charge. Well, our Intel and our organization can charge them too. Mm, okay. That'll, um, so for, so based upon certain things, then we can do charges. Um, and, and we also, I mean, CBSA enforces or has, um, can't enforce over 170 acts of yeah. parliament, right? So there's a ton of different pieces of legislation that we can look at, that we can, um, you know, charge people with. Yeah. And Customs Act has multiple pieces of legislation. Uh, Immigration Refugee Protection Act has multiple pieces of legislation that we can use. So I mean, there's there's always um, something that we can kind of look at to ensure that people um, are motivated not to commit it. The act again. Is there any, um, and you know, kind of maybe going back a little bit, talking about the mental health stuff. Is there any stuff that, uh, as you're going through your career with CBSA, because you did, uh, you're at 18 years, 19 years? 18. Um, 18. So is there stuff you see, and I'm kind of thinking of my own job at the when I'm talking about this, but stuff that you see that, um, or deal with that really gets to you? Have you ever had those experiences where you're like, holy shit, like this, or, you know, maybe you're not going to charge and you're like, okay, like, how are we not charging this person or stuff that kind of maybe sets you off? Yeah. I mean, look, there's, uh, there's always, mm, so in terms of like something that really traumatized me that I've seen, not so much, um, like not not really like from that perspective like mm-hmm. oh I've, I've seen you know images that might have traumatized me um i've seen a lot of things now if i reflect back I, there's a lot of things that would probably traumatize people yeah now having said that have i built up a wall over a period of time i'm sure i probably have and i think um you know if i was brand new green looking at some of the things that i've seen yeah probably would have affected me mm-hmm. But fortunately for me, I didn't see a lot of that stuff until after a few years of kind of building up a wall. Mm. And um, what really kind of did affect me, though, is because I, I, I early on, 
when I started taking on immigration roles where I would remove people from the country. And, you know, sometimes removing people from the country, sometimes that bothered me, man. Yeah. Uh, to be honest. Yeah. It, when, you know, let's say you have someone coming here, they're not a bad person, right? They're, they're, you know, person coming up here, let's say they're a young individual, maybe they're a Mexican national, let's say, right? And they're coming up to Canada, maybe to find a better life, mm. maybe to have a job, maybe to work on a construction site, whatever, right? And, um, you know, they're obviously going to be deceptive when they're coming to the border because they need certain requirements and paperwork to be able to do that. But having said that, um, you know, sending people back home for not having proper documentation at the very beginning when I first started did affect me because I'm like, oh, these aren't even bad people, man. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sending them back home and they're, and they're like, they, they secured a job here. And now that they, they have no money and their family's not to eat or whatever, right? These types of things. I mean, that would aff affect people because, you know, some people might not be that um, desperate, right? You come from the United States and okay, whatever, you get sent back home. But when you're coming from a country where, you know, your only means, yeah. like, you, you spent all the money to get here. And now, you know, you had an opportunity to get a job and you could have fed your family. And, and you know, that that was um, difficult for me at the beginning. Mm. And I had to find ways to kind of navigate through that. And I, I'm not sure if I found the right ways. I just shut down the emotion and kind of mm. <laughs> kept moving forward. I didn't want to, I didn't want to connect with the people. So, because for me, I'm an emotional guy. And I know if I knew if I would start connecting, um, it would make the job a lot harder for me to execute. Yeah. Well, and some of the stuff you brought up here. So you're saying like even in the last two, three years is where you've had like a big transformation leading up to that. Um, how were you kind of dealing with things? Is it is it always drinking? Because uh, you were saying you're drinking a lot before, or is it just completely ignoring problems? But how were you dealing with stuff and, and what were you kind of going through? Yeah, I think, um, so a lot of times for me managing my own, and I say this now because I understand it now in terms of I've given myself some time and space to be able to observe and see what I was kind of going through, quote unquote. Um, but at the time I was, you know, ah, it's been a rough week. I'm going to, I feel like it's going out for a few drinks. That's kind of what I would think about. So it would either be drink, um, Physical activity, kind of manage things, or I like I would procrastinate like crazy. I wouldn't do things. I would, like I would. I wasn't a great mm. husband or partner, right? So um, you know that was you know a constant thing for me too. Like I would. This just wasn't a good partner, so that you know I, those things would. Uh, I, mm, how do I say this? Um, Anytime I would drink, bad things would happen. Yeah. So, yeah. And I would manage things that way. So, um, yeah, it's just, I didn't have the right tools. Mm. Um, and what I've done over the last two, even three years, is try just to figure out better tools so that I can do things better. And that's it. Um, and it's been a concerted effort over a three year period of, creating new tools so now for me man i don't even i mean i have a beer every now and then i don't even drink anymore it's not even i haven't even i don't even have a desire to have a beverage. yeah i got zero desire yeah 
because I've, cre- I've created enough self-worth and understanding of who I am as a person. Now it's not even a thing anymore. Now, if I have a drink, it's like, oh, it's a sunny day out. Mm, I feel like having one pint. I want to try something different today. I want to see what this tastes like. Yeah. It's more of like an experience. Yeah. More of an experience rather than like I'm getting plastered tonight. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, well, is it, did you have any sort of event that really set things in motion for you at the end of it all and like got you into what you're in now? Yeah, man. Um, it all started when I was going through my doors because I was presented with the type of person I was and I didn't like who I was. And it coincided with the pandemic. So what it really did was isolate me so I could pay attention to what kind of person I was. And then that gave me an opportunity to take my inventory and figure out how to do things better. Now, had the pandemic not happened, had it not gone through the divorce, had you know all these kind of things coincide at the same time, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what, what I would have mm. done in terms of like what I've cha- made changes. I don't know. But I was forced to, or I was given it. No, I wasn't forced. I was forced into an environment and then decide what I wanted to do. Do I want to observe where I'm at and then take inventory and then do things better? Or do I want to continue on this path and just, you know, figure just, yeah, continue on with the path I was on, which was not a constructive mm-hmm. one, which wasn't a positive one, which likely would have turned out very, very bad had it continued because I wasn't in the right ma- mindset or uh, mental state at the time. So um, yeah, man, the divorce and I owe my ex-wife a great deal, to be honest, um, because she held me accountable mm-hmm. for the type of person I was. And, and she didn't, uh, she didn't sugarcoat anything. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I'll say, uh, I like how uh, you, the term you use are taking inventory, like, cause like, yeah, you just got to go, just like you're cleaning out your house, you got to look and be like, man, I got a lot of shit in here. I got to get rid of some of this, yeah. get things sorted. Yeah. So, because um, I want to keep you too, too long, uh, and we're just about over the time, um, I want to make sure we talk just about what you're doing now. Sure. And then give people the opportunity or give you the opportunity to tell people how to follow you and how to donate. Um, so you're you're big into jujitsu now, you're doing marathons. Yeah. Um, can you talk yeah. a little bit about the training? Like, what are you doing to prepare for all the events? Sure. So, um, for your listeners, um, I've been in bodybuilding for a number of years, jujitsu for the last five or six. And over the last two, I've really devoted a lot of energy into becoming a better ultra endurance athlete and running. And now what that did was, um, it started shifting my mindset even further to now I don't really train jujitsu much anymore. And I don't lift weights as much anymore. Everything is designed to become a better, more efficient and effective runner mm. over long distances. So over the last couple of years, I've been running um, ultra marathon distances, 50K or more, to raise awareness and funds for the Honor House Society, which is a charity that supports veterans, all first responders and emergency personnel in, in, in uniform with occupational stress injuries and PTSD. And in, um, when I first started this journey in a 12-month period, I raised just about $50,000 for the charity just through running, wow. just through me um, raising awareness through my Instagram. Mm-hmm. And um, so what that did for me on November 7th, 2021, I had run 100 kilometers from the PRTC in Chilliwack to uh, Pacific Ridge and Tra- 
Pacific Regional Training Center in Chilliwack, the RCMP. And I ran from there to the Vancouver International Airport, which is about, well, exactly 100 kilometers. And I ran that just under 15 hours and raised $21,000 for the BC Yukon Legion Command for for veterans and uh, RCMP members for PTSD programs. And that day, um, through that process, then shifting on to November 8th, 2021, I had a significant paradigm shift in perspective. I knew I... um, I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. I knew I didn't want to work in law enforcement anymore. I just didn't know how to leave. Mm. So I established that. And then um, over the last two years, man, last year I ran nine ultra marathons in nine months, starting in March all the way into November. Um, I raised fifteen thousand um, dollars last year for the Honor House Society, again who supports all veterans. And it's a small charity too, man. It's uh, only one employee and. Um, oh really you know all the funds wow. yeah it's only one employee and all the funds go towards that i'm raising go towards supporting all the members in, in, in bc whoever need a place to stay a home away from home any treatment that they need in certain areas that it goes to them man and um this year i'm because i've been going so last year i kind of did this sort of well, in november 2021 did that first challenge going 100k and then that kind of set me up for last year to do all those nine ultras. And those nine ultras were basically a learning process for me to travel around, meet you people, understand this new world that I'm in. Cause I had no clue what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Still kind of, I still kind of don't, but I know a bit more than I did last year. And, um, so I did all that and it helped my body to understand that, okay, what other changes I need to do. So this year I've made all the changes in terms of like, you know, not lift all my recovery time is for running. And then uh, I've created a team around me to help me execute against this. So strength conditioning coach, mm. physi- uh, kinesiologist, um, run coach, all these types of people to help me figure out how to run uh, 22 marathons in 22 days in August. And so really I've been training since January to progressively increase my and improve my body so that I can manage that. And why am I doing the 22 marathons? Obviously, to raise the awareness to um, for our members with uh, mental health issues. And why 22? Well, the study in 2011 in the United States was done that shows that 22 veterans a day commit suicide. Mm. And statistically, that was that was that's the number. And I suspect that number is a lot higher if you were to incorporate first responders and emergency personnel and Canada into that study. Yeah. So I'm I'm I'm. So that's why we're using 22, but also to help me train my body, right? This 22 days is a training, it's a training exercise. That's what it is. Because I need to be able to transform my body and become something that it isn't. And so that's what those 22 days is going to do. And that's going to set me up for next year, which will have a, a larger challenge, which I already have um, kind of outlined. I'll be running from... Well, plan is for next year is to run from depot to victoria right? mm-hmm, okay. and then that'll that'll lead me up to 2025 which is the ultimate goal to run across canada and the goal for running across canada is to break the record for the fastest run across canada mm. so that's why i've kind of brought all these different pieces in i'm gone i've gone all in I'm, I'm just, everything is this now how do i get my time <laughs> and for your listeners to run across canada to break the record for someone who just started running is a very daunting task Mm -hmm. and the probability of me doing it is pretty super duper low but having said that 
um, I'm going all in, man. I want to see what I can do. And if I can, you know, the record is 7,300 kilometers in 67 days and 10 hours. Wow. Really? And that was set by, yeah, that was set by Dave Proctor last year and he's from Calgary and he's an ultra endurance athlete. He's been doing these types of things most of his life. And he was running six minutes per kilometer for a hundred and some odd kilometers every single day for 67 days. Damn. And that was the pace he was at. So now for me to do, for me to break that record, I have to be, I have to run about 108 kilometers every single day for 66 days. Mm. And, um, so that's, you know, training takes a few years to do that. So can I do that? I don't know. Um, am I going to try and put all my energy into figuring out how to do it? Yes. Will I break the record? Again, I don't know. Um, will I get close? I think so. I think I'll be able to for sure get anywhere from 80. Like right now, I know within two more years of training, I can definitely get to 80 or 100 kilometers every single day. Yeah. I, I can get that. And um, man, that is a win for me because two and a half years ago, I could barely run five. And to today, in just two years of, um, you know, putting the right foot forward and moving in a direction that I feel is righteous. And that is meant to help others and is for a purpose greater than myself. I think, you know, going from not running at all at the age of 40 something and have, having not ran since high school, going from that to running, I can run just about 50 K every single day. Now, if you give me the time to do it. So in August running 22 marathons in 22 days, man, I'm excited to do that. Yeah. Cause I want to see what I'm capable of. I want to see if I can actually execute against it. And I want to see if I get injured. I want to see if I can overcome those things. I want to, all those things that are going to happen. I want to see if I can do it. Mm -hmm. I want to see if I can overcome those things. So man, I can't wait to, to go through that fire. Well, when you do this stuff, does a whole team travel with you? Do you bring in like a, a bunch of people? So I'm not at the stage yet where, um, I can make that happen because it requires a lot of people to take times away from their lives mm -hmm. too. And a lot of the people that are helping me, they're doing it all voluntarily. I'm not paying anyone for anything because I don't have the funds to do it. And, mm -hmm. and not that I don't want to pay everyone. Once I get into a position where I can, man, yeah, for sure that's going to happen. But these are all amazing people, all people that are around me over the last couple of years that have kind of gravitated towards me based upon what we're doing. And they're all devoting their own personal time. So um, if they're able to come and join me for that, cool. Mm. If they're not, and that's cool too, man. Um, you know, I'm framing it in, the, in my mind that I'm going to take my car with a tent and I'm going to get it. I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. That's worst case scenario. <laughs> I'm, I've already framed it worst case scenario. So I'm not framing it best case scenario. Best case scenario is I got an RV. I got two or three people with me mm -hmm. and, and making it happen. And that's kind of what I'm hearing to make happen but if that doesn't happen i have to drive my own car and i have to tent up every day cool yeah let's go yeah that's awesome yeah well and um so what made you pick the run across canada you're saying what made you choose 22 marathons the run across canada just yeah. personal goal yeah so no to answer that question the the what got me to the cross canada thing right so as you can imagine, this has been a, a long path and journey, and a lot of it's been with uh, individual reflection over the last three, four years. 
and testing myself multiple, multiple times over that time to get me to where I'm at. And so in about, uh, in 2021 for months and months and months before I had run that first hundred kilometers, I was, um, just trying to figure out how to run better. I was training myself the whole entire time that first year on how to just run more. And, um, so how was I doing that, man? I was, uh, I was listening to tons of different podcasts. I was listening to different types of people who were doing different types of things. And uh, I came across Cameron Haynes. And Cameron Haynes is an ultra-endurance athlete. He's a bow hunter from the United States. He's in his 50s. And I heard him on Joe Rogan's podcast over two years ago. And he was on that podcast talking about how he trains for an ultra-marathon he does. And he runs 100-milers or 200-milers. 250 miles. And I was listening to him and at the time he was working full time. So he would say he would run a marathon a day while every single day while he was working. So he'd run 21 in the morning and 21 after work. Jeez. And, <laughs> uh, and, and he, he would, that would be his training ground. Yeah. Right. And I was like, man, I, I heard that. And that was it. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, Oh, I, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I didn't know that was like, people do that. Right. And they put it on the radar for me. I was like, oh, I want to do that. How do I do that? And I'm just that guy who just hears cool ass things and wants to be able to figure out how to do them. And because I want to, I, I want to be people like that. I want to be a person like that. Yeah. Right. I want to be someone who can do those types of things. And I heard that and I was like, wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. Okay. Let me figure out how to do that. And that was in about January or something in 2021. And then in February of 2021, I created a schedule and a program for myself to figure out how to run 21K each day for a week. And um, I progressively increased that. I started at 11 kilometers, and then over a 10-week period, I would add a kilometer each week onto that. So it would be 11 kilometers a day, 12, 13, progressively. And I was working full-time. And I'm a dog handler, and I was running my dog. And uh, I was a new dad, and I was going through a divorce. All <laughs> the things were happening in my life. And I was sleeping three hours a day. Like I was, I had a major depressive, major depressive episode. I got Medicaid. All the things were happening. Man. And I, um, and I, I eventually, after ten weeks, I did it. I got to twenty-one k each day uh, for seven days, and I was like, I can run across Canada. And the reason why I made the connection is because I thought about Terry Fox immediately, mm-hmm. because Terry Fox is at the forefront of my mind, as he is for most Canadians because he's an inspiration to all of us. And for me, and for me, when I got to that, because I thought 21K would be impossible. And it's for me running 21K every single day is like almost running across Canada already. For me to go where I was to do that was like freaking hard, man, Mm -hmm. to get to that, to get to that point. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I can run across Canada. I could run 21 in the morning and then 21 in the afternoon and I can do that. And I could, so that's what started that concept. I was like, I mean, Terry Fox did it 40 years ago. He did it while he had cancer, essentially. Mm -hmm. He did it on one leg. He did it on a prosthetic that was terrible. And I'm a healthy man who's (laughs) an athlete who's a, probably a better athlete than he is or was at his age at that time. I'm a better athlete at this age for myself. Makes you put things in perspective (laughs) and it makes it hard for you to complain. Yeah. Yeah. So I started breaking it down and I was like, man, I can do that. 
And that's what kind of started that ball rolling. And, um, and I've shifted things and I've moved things around based on my progression. Um, I, I could probably run across Canada now by running a marathon each day for a few months. I could do that. It was tough as heck, but I could do it. But what it got me thinking again, I was like, okay, if I can kind of do that already, like that's what I was thinking like a year ago, I could kind of do that already. What happens if I go all in? Mm-hmm. What happens if I take a leave of absence, I get all the right people around me, I um, devote my entire life to figuring out how to break a record to run across Canada. And then I thought, man, if I could just figure out that piece, that can galvanize the entire country around a common goal, which is mental health. Because now you're talking about someone who's just a guy who um, was inspired by some pretty amazing, awesome people to do something remarkable given the time that I, I have. And man, that's enough for me because I think, you know, I've already just by doing what I'm doing, people are uh, resonating with it, man. Like yeah. people are getting up and, and doing things. People are, man, it's emotional for me to even think about that. Once you're out there running, I feel like, uh, and you, you start getting that, um, those crowds show up and you see people along the path. Mm-hmm. I think that would be almost maybe the most emotional. That might be the hardest part to kind of keep it together when you see people getting behind what you're doing. And I mean, if, if you can provide a, let's say a rallying point for the country in, especially in today's world where yeah, a lot of things are so divisive and everybody's screaming and shouting about everything. Um, we do need something like that. We need something like that. I, I man, I, I was thinking the exact same thing, man. Cause like, look, I'm, I'm not a saint, man. I'm full of all kinds of flaws. Like I'm not perfect at all. I've made tons of bad choices in my life. And, um, I probably make some more mm-hmm. to be honest. And I'm just trying to be the best version of myself and trying to do the best I can for people around me. And, and, and if I can, Man, if I could just do 1% of what I have in my mind, and if we can figure out a way that we can kind of create something that has nothing to do with politics, man, it has nothing to do with pointing fingers at people, has everything to do with bringing people together, yeah. has everything to do with love and compassion and um, you know, doing better for yourself and for everyone around you. Man, it doesn't get any better than that, man. And for me, that's just, uh, I honestly, honestly feel blessed. Like I, I, some days I think about where I was a year ago and I can't imagine where I am now. And then sometimes I think about where it could be in a year. And I try not to think that much too, too much because I don't want to get ahead of myself because I don't know what will happen. But what I do know is that people are being affected and people are resonating with what I'm trying to do and it's having a positive impact by, uh, by the people around me. And that's good enough for me to keep moving forward. Awesome. Well, and I think that kind of brings us back to what we were talking about at the beginning, just taking control, taking responsibility and, you know, you realize up to you to, to make things happen and, and you're doing that. So that's awesome. Um, I think it's a good place to wrap. I want to make sure you get a chance to say how people can follow you, uh, where to find you and your work. 
Sure, man. I have a, I pretty much have all the platforms. I'm on Instagram. So um, hopefully in the show notes, we'll have all that information. Yeah. Uh, I have Instagram. I have a website, suchinmotion.ca. All the information that, of who I am, what I'm trying to do is on the website. Um, I also have a YouTube channel, Such In Motion. Um, and for me, the ultimate vision is YouTube over the next 10 years to build that platform to a substantial kind of platform that um, you know inspires, motivates, and educates people over a period of time. And, and I want to use the money that comes from that or is generated from that to reinvest back in the community, give to Honor House, give to various different organizations that may need it in Canada. And um, that's the vision, man. Um, YouTube, grow that platform and just keep driving forward every single day with a positive message. That's it. Good stuff. Well, uh, I want to say thanks for coming on. Uh, hang on the line for two seconds. I'll say bye offline. Yeah, but, man. Uh, yeah, it was sure. great to have you on here. Pleasure's all mine, bro.